I'm Joyce Hornady. You might say accuracy is my business. I make bullets. You are listening to the Hornady Podcast. Thanks for joining us and enjoy the show. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Hornady Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Seth Swerzik, joined today across the table by fellow marketeer Preston Lentford. Preston, thanks for coming on again. Yeah, glad to be back. I'm glad you're here because we've got a guest on the show today that uh, that we know and we've gotten to know over the years in a sport that we're passionate about, although not necessarily as good as we... He's way gooder than yeah, us. Yeah, yeah, a little bit. So uh, <laughs> let's try to digest as much information yeah. as we can get out of this guy and join me in welcoming Austin Orgain to the podcast. Austin, thanks for, for coming on. Hey guys, thanks for having me. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, we couldn't be happier because, uh, yeah, you are a joy, a spectacle to behold when you're burning down uh, a precision rifle course. And, uh, you know, that's, that's a gift, but that's something that yep. takes a lot of work. And so I want to know all about it. But before we get to the PRS stuff, we got to know what was Austin Orgain doing uh, growing up? Where'd you grow up at? Where are you from? Uh, what were you interested in, in in your younger days? And what got you into shooting? Okay, so I, uh, I grew up in Hammond, Oklahoma. It's a really small town, far western Oklahoma, just north of Elk City. More people probably know where Elk City is than Hammond. Um, growing up, I grew up kind of as a, in a rural place with, as a farm kid. Uh, really, neither one of my parents were much into hunting or shooting or anything like that. I honestly don't even know why I got into it or where I got into it. Uh, for the most part, as a kid, I played a lot of baseball and basketball. Played baseball and basketball all the way through high school, but um, even during that, I started shooting for, with the 4-H. Uh, okay. 4-H program, we started shooting some pellet rifle, pellet pistol, and actually, even predating that, I shot with a, a an association called JC's, and they did uh, BB guns. Um, they had a big tryout deal at Elk City. We had to go in and, and shoot some and, and do a safety test deal, and Basically, they'd take the top shooters on that, put on a team, and then they would go to a competition about once a year, maybe twice a year, I think it was, uh, and shoot BB guns. Then really from that, and then I went into the 4-H uh, pellet rifle, pellet pistol. Did that till I got old enough, and actually our, our district, our charter, started doing some shotgun stuff. So I started shooting trap. Uh, oh. I shot skeet a few times, only at competition. We did not have a trap or a skeet range set up so i didn't get to practice it but we'd show up right. and just shoot it anyway it's a lot of fun trial by uh, fire you know yeah for sure um i you know i was always happy with the way i did there not ever getting to shoot it uh you know we'd practice a lot of trap and and it was a whole different animal going to ski you know you had to take some pretty quick shots on that um so i did that uh once i got out of high school got to college uh not a lot of shooting in college still hunted quite a bit uh hunted a lot of whitetail deer I actually rodeoed. Um, I was a team roper and calf roper in, in my junior rodeo days all the way through high school, and I actually went on college scholarship uh, oh, nice. as a team roper and calf roper. So spent four years of college pretty much chasing rodeos. Yeah, I was going mm-hmm. to ask, like, we've had two pretty elite shooters on here that were golfers. <laughs> wondered if you'd yeah. golf too, but no, team no. roping, that's no, he's, great. He's a rodeo. I'm terrible at golf. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I I would not call myself a golfer. I, I go and have fun and drink some beer, but and I don't yeah, take golf very serious. You know, I, I wanted to be really good at it uh, after I graduated college and got a job and, and wanted to be competitive at something, and I started playing a lot of golf, and that's, yeah, that's just not my sport. I never did get 
very good at it. Yeah. So I didn't know if it was a, a a trend among the top shooters or what. Yeah, I didn't know. <laughs> what did you uh, go to college to pursue? Uh, I actually started out in pre-pharmacy. Uh, I wanted okay. to go into pharmacy, uh, a college here in Western Oklahoma and Weatherford, Oklahoma, uh, called Southwestern Oklahoma State University is one of the premier pharmacy schools in the nation. So I started out pre-pharmacy, made it uh, actually through some organic chemistries and things like that, decided that really wasn't what I wanted to do, uh, transferred over into engineering, uh, <laughs> and then I'd already had several chemistries, so I took an extra chemistry and minored in chemistry. So, Wow. Took it in a, a, a really hard 90 degree turn. Yeah, for sure. But I'm glad I did. It, it suits my personality a lot better, I feel like, and uh, I've, I've really enjoyed that career path. Most of it's led more oil field. Uh, you know, that's just a lot of what we have out here in this part of the country. But Sure. Well, that, yeah, that stands to reason. And, yeah. uh, man, the rodeo circuit, that's a, that's a rough one, both, uh, you know, rough physically, but, you know, there's the grind of it from the folks I know that did that for a lot of years. There's the grind of uh, it's physically demanding. It kind of hurts sometimes, and then you're doing it over and over, and there's a bunch of travel involved. And Yeah, absolutely. It's very um... – you know, I'd say it's very short fused. You know, you, you travel hours and hours and hours and spend hours and hours and hours of practicing for, you know, a few seconds. Right. Um, each weekend, you know, if you're hitting a few rodeos a weekend, you may really, you may not perform 10, 15 seconds on a whole weekend. Um, so it's, it's really opposite of the precision rifle where you're basically performing for an entire weekend. You have to stay hyper-focused for an entire weekend. Rodeo is... You know, is a lot of travel and and uh, just really yeah, not much bit. performing. Yeah. Huh. So you you get out of college, you uh, settled back, you stayed right there in Oklahoma. I'm guessing, obviously, yeah. with the oil fields. Yeah. Awesome. So, uh, what years are we looking at when you when you graduated college, you get a job, uh, and you're trying to find your niche? And you said you wanted to be a competitive, you know, wanted to be good at something, so you started golfing. Uh, yeah. What years are you looking at, and when did you find rifle shooting? So I graduated college in 2012. Kind of funny story there. I was trying to be a career student, and uh, <laughs> I had a job waiting on me. So my dad said, "Hey, you better go ahead and just graduate and uh, take a job while you got one." And it was a good job. I, I got an engineering job uh, for a company called Weatherford International. Uh, I was a frac engineer. That was in 2012. Um, I was working in Woodward, Oklahoma, which is about an hour north of where I grew up here. Had an apartment there was really at the time was doing some doing the training and stuff we didn't have a very set schedule i was working a lot of hours i mean just all the time uh, i was gone a lot spent probably 200 to 250 days a year in a hotel oh, uh, hard no just wow. working all the time so at that point i wasn't able to stay competitive with the rodeo uh, i couldn't keep horses in shape didn't have time to practice uh, i still had some horses through that time period but i just wasn't getting to do very much um, really what got me going is I've always been interested in the long range shooting. I've always wanted to, to kind of know more about it. I just never had the time or application for it. And really at the time in college, I didn't have the money for, it. you know, it's a pretty sure. expensive sport to get started in. Yeah. Um, so I was working in Woodward. Uh, there's a gun store in Woodward called Butch's Guns. Um, pretty big gun store. They build a lot of custom rifles. I went in there. You know, once or twice a week, whenever we weren't working, I'd go in and just check stuff out. Got to kind of know those guys up there and be friends with them. He had a rifle built that was uh, sitting on the counter that they had built for somebody else. It was a left-handed, uh, it was actually a left-handed stiller. 
action on a manor stock uh bartline barrel so i saw it and it was in a, and at the time six by 47 was pretty popular cartridge and i made sure. up my mind that that's what i wanted so basically it was the gun that i wanted um and so i hit butch up about it and i said hey what about this gun and he said well we built that for a guy but he hasn't paid for it yet and I said, okay. And so kind of the next week I hit him up about it again. He's like, yeah, let me call the guy on that. Well, it turns out the guy didn't have the money to pay for it, had it built. And so he sold the gun to me. He sold that, that rifle to me. And uh, those guys up there kind of got me started on reloading and, and how to reload and how to gather dope. You know, I didn't have a Kestrel at the time. And I was just basically trying to shoot a distance and write down, you know, what it took to shoot that. And then it didn't take me very long to realize that wasn't a very good way to do it because, uh, you couldn't take any environmentals into account. You know, one day it would work okay, and the next day it wouldn't work at all. Mm-hmm. So I bought a Kestrel. Um, I started off shooting. They had some small local matches up at Butch's. Very, very difficult matches. They're field-type matches. They shoot a lot of what's called KD lines. And so essentially the stage would have 10 targets, and it would be two shots per target, but everybody shot target one. And then you go to target two, and you rotate who goes first, then everybody shoots target two. You go to target three, and they would do it as a first round hits two points, second round hits one point. So you basically get rewarded for a really good first win call. Sure. Um, and so that's where I cut my teeth longer in shooting, uh, probably where I learned to read win really well, because reading, you, you, I mean, you got double the points to be able to read the win and make a good first shot. Uh, so it made it really important there. Shot some of that, and then uh, the Oklahoma Club, uh, it's called Oklahoma Practical Precision Shooters, OPPS, started in that. Uh, I'll rewind a little bit here. So 2012, I graduated. uh, It's about 2015, probably, when I got this rifle and started shooting some club matches. And really what it was was I was working all the time. Uh, There was just kind of a hole there, man. I've always been competitive in something. I wanted to compete. Uh, In that time frame, I, I... Played quite a bit of golf when I could. You know, I'd take my clubs to work with me. If I worked a night shift or something like that, I'd get off in the morning and go play around the golf and then go to bed. Um, really, I mean, I, I probably should have took some lessons, should have done something. It took me a long time to figure a lot of that stuff out on my own. Kind of funny story. Uh, I wasn't very good with a driver. Had a really uh, bad baseball swing. You know, it'd slice every time. Just could not fix it. Finally, I played golf with a guy that played quite a bit. and. Uh, and my boss that I had at the time, he was pretty good at golf, and he liked to play. Uh, they kind of showed me some things on how to fix it, and it was it was a really crazy way closed-off stance that I tried, and I finally started hitting the ball. And I just stayed with that stance until I started hooking the ball, and then I'd start working my feet back around. Anyway, I got to where I could drive the ball really well, and I could still drive the ball pretty well, but I can't hit irons very well now. <laughs> you know, pretty out of practice. So yeah. uh, a little, a little bit of like Nebraska, there's no playing in the winter. So you're pretty much starting from scratch in the spring. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's me now. I think I played twice last year. I played a, a little alumni tournament and then a, a work deal uh, where I work now. They uh, had a little tournament deal that our, our company sponsored. So right on. So, so what, what does that bring us to? Um, you, you're doing the OPPS stuff. You got that rifle in 2015. I mean, that's yep. kind of when you started being a decent shooter, as Tate Streeter would say. Yeah, so uh, 2015, it was early 2015 when I got that. It was probably like um, February-ish because they were just starting those matches at Butch's. They usually start about February, March, somewhere in there. 
Um, shot a couple of those, and I, I don't know. I just I kind of took to it like a duck to water. It, it was it was a uh, I had a knack for it. I really wanted it. I wanted to learn about it. I researched a lot of different stuff. I talked to a lot of really good shooters. Um, how they did things and just observed how everybody else did things. Um, fast forward a little bit, Butch at the time was having his belly match, which is a kind of a big money match. You know, it was a little bit higher entry fee, hundred percent payback. Had like twenty five hundred or five thousand added. I don't remember. It was a big cash payback wow. match, and wow. so really that's the first big match I shot. In between there, I shot a one or two OPPS matches, which was a lot more PRS style than what Butch's matches were up there with the KD lines. So I kind of got introduced to that. I shot this Butch's belly match. Uh, which at the time was, you know, pretty big match for the area, uh, and got third in it. And so I won some money there. I shot a little bit in the OPPS that year, went to the OPPS finale that fall, and got second at the finale. Then uh, in February of 2016, shot my very first PRS match at Rifles Only. Um, I call it Rifles mostly at that time because there was a lot of pistol shooting involved in it. Yeah. And uh, shooting that, I, I, we figured the points up. If there was no pistol in at all, I shot my rifle well enough to finish second in my very first PRS match, but I dropped too many pistol points. So I think I ended up like 13th or something like that. In the uh, first still one. not bad for the very first match, no, especially with all. as much as we had to shoot pistol. I think I dropped 14 points with a pistol or something like that. I was terrible. I, you know, I hadn't had a whole lot of exposure to pistol except for the pellet pistol shooting stuff. And uh, that showed me right there that I had a weak spot I really needed to work on. So. I bought a decent pistol and got really good with pistol, and now we don't shoot pistols at all anymore. Rifle matches, so <laughs> so uh, that that brings up a question to me: is like we've been shooting PRS type matches for a long time now. At this point, we're never going to finish near the top, mm-hmm. likely. What does it take? What did it take that year? I mean, what was your training regimen, or how did you get good quick? You know. So really, at that time, it was just a lot of rounds down range. Um, I would go to a match and figure out something that I sucked at. Uh, I would go to practice and I'd just practice that, you know, figured out I wasn't very good shooting off of barricades and positional, especially at the time when I started, we didn't have as the quality of bags and gear that we have now. So, and, and really the quality of props that we shot off of then, uh, you shot off a lot of wobbly stuff. So it took some, uh, basically time to figure out how to time your wobble and things like that. Um, and so I would just build a prop and I would go out and I'd just practice that. I would spend whatever ammo I needed to there. Now, that's, that being said, you know, that 2015, 2016 area, I'd say probably more so 2016. I shot a lot of rounds, you know, probably about 20,000 rounds in the year. Wow. Uh, ran through about six barrels worth of six by 47. I was going to ask, are you, are you practicing with the, your, the your race competition gun? cartridge? Yeah, that, oh yeah, too? everything I did, I, I did it with uh, everything, what I was going to run. I practiced with exactly what I was going to run, you know. Um, you know, the, you, you could practice with a 223 and a 22, and you can get some fundamentals and stuff down, but really, it's best to practice with what you're going to run. You want to know that cartridge inside it out, you know, yeah. what it's doing. Um, I mean, and, and when you when you practice, I, I don't practice near that much now. Um, really, then it was just more of a, I really, really enjoyed it, and... Uh, I was kind of hitting matches hard. A lot of those were matches. You know, I probably shot 10 matches or so that 2016 year, I think. Maybe not quite that. I mean, there's a lot of guys from the area that were going. Um, there's a town north of here in Visai, uh, which is actually where I work now. There was about four guys up there that were going to the matches pretty hard, and we'd all travel together, and it was a really good time. 
And uh, so a lot of the rounds were in matches, but I would still practice quite a bit too. If I went to a match and it was, you know, let's say it was uh, some really small targets or something like that that I was struggling with, and I would just go set up really small targets when I got back, and that's what I would practice until I felt really comfortable with that. Um, you know, starting off, it was just a lot of rounds downrange. I didn't have, you know, I had guys in the OPPS that I could shoot with, but I didn't have a lot of people just really local that I could go practice with. So it was a lot of just on my own solo practicing. Did you have a, a nice practice range set up? Or did we, where were you practicing? Yeah, I did. So I have a friend uh, that has quite a bit of land out north of town, uh, a guy named Daniel Hughes. He He's a pretty big time hunter, too. We, we've hunted a lot together. Uh, killed a lot of animals together and stuff like that. So he likes to shoot. He's actually a really good shooter. He just doesn't like to reload. And uh, so he'll go out and shoot with me sometimes when he has ammo, but he won't shoot near as much as I do just because he doesn't want to have to reload or get more ammo. But we set up a nice range on uh, his place. I had two or three different uh, directions for targets. We had from about 300 yards to a little over 1,000 yards, I think. We could have got out to twelve or 1,300 yards if we wanted to, but Really, there was no need. I set up some pretty small targets and some pretty good, decent-sized targets to be able to shoot at. Um, really good place, shooting across canyons, uh, shooting across ponds. Very difficult place to shoot just because of the way the wind comes through the canyons and the draws. Uh, it really made you a good wind reader to be able to practice there, too. So. And that's, yeah, that's the Achilles heel of, of, of a lot of shooters. A lot of, the, a lot of us uh, mid-pack shooters, that's, the, that's, that's what separates yep. is, is a lot of it is the is the wind um, sure. so you're in that 2015 2016 time frame and i don't know your whole uh uh match record but about 2017 2018 time frame you were you were making podium finishes at national level matches if i'm not mistaken yeah for sure i think i think it was 2016 at it was in Texas. I think they called it like the Aussie Showdown or something like that. Jordy Richardson put the match on. Um, I still remember Paul Reed ended up winning, but it was my first trophy match. I, I won a trophy. I got fifth that match. And it was actually the very first match I ever ran a dasher. Mm. Uh, I went to they. I, I didn't want to mess with the fire form and brass and stuff, so I was running the six by forty seven. And then, uh, at the time, Norma came out with their dasher brass, the long neck dasher. So I got some of that brass, and that was actually the very first match I shot uh dasher at and got fifth and then yeah I go into 2017 we went to uh southwind i'm sorry spearpoint the very first uh year that spearpoint had a match in kansas mm-hmm. uh that was my first win i won that match it was actually pretty funny we were all standing around in a circle and i was talking to dave preston and and you know I, I knew who he was i'd seen him shoot a lot before he started you know several years before i did and he'd won golden bullet and and some of those guys, and actual Char- Charles Roberts, we were all just standing there talking, and the scores came out, and Charles Roberts just goes, who the hell is this Austin guy? <laughs> and Dave, he just, he just pointed over at me and said, him. <laughs> and awkward. so, yeah, I kind of got awkward there. But I think I was at that match. I think I either that was the, the first year I went or the year that you went, and you were sucking water off your cartridges because it was raining yep, was, so bad. Yeah, yeah that, that first year it rained really hard. Yeah, I remember that we had to shoot off of a, a chained platform on a yes, the chair, turkey chair across a, a piece yes, of 550 cord. The Ridiculous. turkey chair, yep. And it was a troop line on top of that. It's like a three or four target troop line. I think yeah. high score of the whole match was two or three or something. I got that a zero was, on that one. That was a, a tough match for sure. So in it that 2017-18 time frame, you're really starting to discover like, okay, not only am I 
competent and, and pretty good at this, but I can be competitive to, to, to look to win every match I go to. When did you link up with uh, what I'm going to call the other Oklahoma shooters? Because there's, there's several of you guys uh, that, that all seem to travel together now. When did you guys start uh, finding each other, if you will? Yeah, so so Tate he had shot a few years before I did, and I had actually met Tate at you know through the OPPS shooting club okay. matches. I won one of his uh, club matches down there that he had at his place. Um, he was you know in the midst of getting these impact actions going, and he actually had the actions built and going, and and he just kind of approached me and said, "Hey, uh, you know, if I build you a left-handed action, will you run it?" And I said, "Well, yeah, absolutely." Um, so twenty seventeen. Um, that year, 2017, right? It was right before the NRL finale, the NRL finale that I won in uh, 2017. I got serial number 001 left-handed action. Nice. Impact. So, um, and, and I'd kind of known Tate there. We'd kind of hung out. We traveled to, let's see, we traveled to Raton, or not Raton, it was Logan, New Mexico. We shot the NRL match whenever they had it out there at Blue Ridge where they have uh, Steel Safari and stuff like that. We traveled together. Uh, fast forward a little bit, Clay, he was traveling to a lot of matches and stuff. And uh, same thing, kind of through OPPS and just being local. And, and it's a funny story. Actually, Clay grew up just 15 miles north of me in Leedy, Oklahoma. No kidding. Yeah, and so we actually played summer league baseball together. Oh, wow. Um, never really hung out much more than that. It was always kind of a rivalry, Levy versus Hammond and this and that. But we did play some summer league baseball together. So we knew each other already. Uh, started traveling a little bit. And then Justin in there was friends with Clay. So that's kind of how we got linked up with Justin. Was He was a starting friend. And we, and we knew Justin. You know, He started the range down there. He started foul board precision. Uh, he shot, started shooting quite a few of the national level matches that would have been like 2017 ish maybe yeah would have been about 2017 ish because he i think he was at the second spear point match and then that nebraska match uh yeah i think i think he announced his his silent night match out yeah at broadwater, broadwater. yeah yep yeah, oh, yeah battle yeah. battle break right. yep that, that's an awesome match i really wish that would come back Oh, yeah. The first year, not so much. That was like if you shot the very first year of Battle of the Breakneck out there, it's like a ride of passage. You know? Yeah, yeah. Most deserve, miserable I've ever been. You need you deserve a medal or something. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Every, everybody won that match for surviving. Yeah, <laughs> finishing, just for making it through it. Yeah, yeah. That well, was a fun match though. Uh, just to go off on a quick tangent, I love the the layout of that place. And they shot it north of Broadwater, and then they ended up shooting it kind of south of Bridgeport, but in the same universe. Yeah. Uh, and the terrain is just. It's, it's pretty and it's challenging the way the wind, just like you were talking about your practice range, the way that wind comes in and out of those canyons yeah. uh, makes for a challenging day and it kind of levels the playing field. You know, when you've got wind and you're shooting, you know, one day, or excuse me, in the morning you're shooting due east and then 15 minutes later you're shooting due west. I mean, uh, it really makes it a pretty dynamic I love how, I love how you're shooting prone out there, pretty much cliffed out yeah. on a lot of those stages too. It's really cool. and. You're shooting across the canyon at 500 yards. All of a sudden, that canyon stops, and you're shooting at 13 or 1400. Yeah, that's yeah. fun. That was awesome. So you you get got teamed up with the with the Oklahoma guys, and and collectively, you guys have just been on a on a tirade since then of of really high level performance. And you know, just on a unrelated, well, semi related note, what I really enjoy about the sport as a whole, and Preston, you can back me up on this, and you know, as a, as a mid-pack shooter, especially when I first got started 
in 2013-14 time frame, um, you know, where you don't know anything and you don't know what you don't know. You walk in and, and everybody's so helpful and everybody's so open arms about, oh, hey, you know, try this bag out or whatever. And if you're not, it's almost like you get weeded out and, you know, you get the guys yeah. that are kind of yeah. stiff upper lipped and eventually you just don't see them anymore. And one thing that I've really appreciated is, you know, you, you go to a match and you see Tate, Austin, Clay, Justin, and, and there's more of you guys and there's, there's a ton of good shooters in the game. So welcoming. Nobody's, nobody's you know, uh, off-putting. And you guys are hyper-focused, you know, and it, it takes a lot of uh, uh, effort to stay focused. But when somebody, hey, hey, man, you know, what do you think about this, that, the other thing? And it's, you know, it's nice to, to see you guys interact with everybody else. And it uh, doesn't matter if they're going to score last or if they're going to score, you know, fifth against you guys. It, you talk to them the same. And I've, yeah. I've really appreciated that. And especially when upper level competitors, they all seem to have one thing in common is just, a huge competitive edge, right? Or a huge pet drive rather drive. Yeah. Exactly. In some sports, those people can honestly be off putting, but yeah. I, you know, there's very are. few yeah. and far between in this game. Yep. I really, I've really appreciated that. And, uh, so from a training standpoint, you know, you guys are all elite level competitors now. What are you guys doing for training? And I know you guys have, if you would talk about it, the JTAC training, we're training other people, but also what are you doing uh, on a personal level, what 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 does your practice cartridge uh, selection look like? Your practice rifle. Well, so uh, most people don't like the answer that we give on this, but really anymore, we don't do a lot of self training. Um, sure. You know, we've had the question asked several times: Hey, if you had you know fifty rounds or whatever to get ready for a match, what are you going to do? And it's pretty unanimous between all of us: We're going to make sure our guns are running good. Uh, we're going to go out, we're going to shoot some distance, we're going to make sure all of our data is perfect, our velocity, our, our form factor, you know, we're going to get a good zero. Um, I, if I haven't shot for quite a while, I like to take 20 or 30 rounds and go knock the rust off. I'll go shoot some kind of a positional, you know, maybe where I'm having a transition between two or three targets positional. Uh, I don't practice a lot of prone because when I'm running my gun out, it's essentially practice right there. I'm, I'm still trying to get that that focus in mind of i want this first round to hit the target i want the first round to hit the target as soon as i can get it to hit mm-hmm. that way i can send two more rounds and make sure that my gun turned the way i want it to um really so much of the game is just once you have your fundamentals built uh once you know that you're equipped once you have your equipment lined out your guns running good you have the gear that you know that you can trust it's just all mental uh, so I, I would say the biggest jump for me shooting wise is whenever I figured out how to eliminate mental mistakes and not that I don't still make them. I, I definitely do still make them. I actually made some, uh, just the other weekend in Kansas that I kicked myself for that. That's kind of a rarity now, which is a good thing, but you know, you, you see so many guys that'll dial the wrong dope or, you know, hold wind the wrong way or, or whatever it may be. And I think my biggest jump was whenever I figured out how to eliminate that for an entire match. And it's just the mental part of it. It's just hyper-focused. Uh, mm-hmm. You have your routine of what you're going to do when you start the stage. Um, you know, you'll go through your little, I call it a checklist. I really don't have a checklist. It's just the things that I normally do uh, before I start a stage. That way I can eliminate making any of those, the easy mental mistakes, you know, misdialing yeah. dope. 
whatever it may be, stuff stuff that cost you points that that you would have probably hit the target had you not made that mistake. That's simple enough. But so once I reach the top, I really don't have to practice anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so simple. Yeah, yeah right. Yeah. Well, I mean, really, I, I think it is. I think it's once you kind of break into it and figure out the mental game of it. The, the mental aspect of it is the hardest. And, you know, it's, it's still good to get some rounds down range. And I'll, I'll still shoot 15, 20 rounds. But a lot of that 15, 20 rounds is making sure my guns are in good now. I'm still going to make that a quality practice when I'm doing it. Um, I'm still going to get something out of it. That, one thing I try to tell people, too, is practice with a purpose. Yeah. You can't just go out there and burn 20, 30 rounds just jacking around and expect to get better, right? I, I use the example like Michael Jordan. Um, you know, if he was if he played played last night and he sucked at shooting free throws, you think he's going to go to practice today and, and shoot a layup and shoot a three and just mess around? No, he's probably going to go get on the free throw line and practice free throws until he's comfortable with it. Same, same deal. Practice with a purpose. If, you, know, you feel like you're sucking at one thing, go take 20, 30, 40 rounds. Practice that until mm-hmm. you feel comfortable with that. And, and try to treat it like a match. Try to go through the process. Okay, got to get my dope dialed. I'm going to have my dope dialed you know, ahead, of, ahead of time, whatever. I'm going to have everything lined out. And then whenever I'm ready, you don't even necessarily have to time yourself. Um, it is good sometimes to time yourself just because everybody gets done when, when the clock starts, right? Uh, you forget to do well, stuff. Yeah, but, and, and that's that. part of it too. Like <laughs> when I when we first started, I feel like a lot of stages were two minutes. Yeah. Now a lot of them are getting yeah. down to ninety seconds, and that's one thing that I, I haven't heard from some of these elite level shooters yet. Is is, and maybe it's just that you don't notice it, but as a mid pack shooter, I certainly do. You guys' movements are so fluid. Oh yeah. And you have yeah. so much muscle memory and Nothing things wasted. is so smooth. Whereas a new guy. Or me is fumbling around trying to just get the bag get, where you want it, it and get the gun in the bag. You guys are so smooth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this stems from me. There's an old calf rope and saying that that was always drilled in my head and it's slow is smooth and smooth is fast, right? Um, you watch a lot of guys that are like that little fumble of stuff. Probably where the difference is is number one experience, um, which you guys have experience too. You guys shot a lot, but it's the pre-stage thing. Whenever you're looking at a stage, we're gonna have in mind already what we're going to do, where we're going to go, where we're going to place our rifle, where we're going to place our bag. That way, when we actually start the stage, everything's already set into motion, so there's no wasted movement. Um, just basically how we grab the rifle, how we grab the bag and move it is the time saving. And, and there's something to be said about it. You want to move fast and shoot slow. You don't want to rush while you're on the gun. And I actually see some top-level guys that, man, when they move between positions, they move pretty slow. You know, it's smooth, but they're still moving pretty slow. There's no there's no urgency there. But then it seems like they get a real big urgency once they get on the rifle. And they may shoot two rounds really fast. Well, ultimately, that's going to end up costing them, you know, a few points here and there. Whereas I'm the opposite. Everything's kind of a race till I want to close the bolt. So I'm going to move efficiently and as quickly as I can. Once the bolt, bolt closes, I want to take that second and make sure everything's right before I break a shot. Because I don't want to break a bad shot. Yeah, you can't get that shot back either. Well, and especially as we've talked about on this podcast, when the a, a, a few places is separated by a point, yeah, or, one impact. or two points, one impacts all that matters. Hey, here's one better for you: the 2020 Precision Rifle Series Championship was separated the first three places by a point for the whole season. Wow! wow. So just think about that: one mental mistake, one one oh shoot, I didn't quite get steady like I wanted to and broke a bad shot. For the whole season, could have changed the outcome of the 2020. Oh, that is 
hyper competitive. That's mind bottling. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Put your mind in a bottle. Yeah. <laughs> mind bottling. Yeah, that is pretty wild. And and just to go back a little bit, you, you mentioned you want to practice with a purpose. And I think that's that's probably one of the best takeaways because uh, you, like us, like a ton of people in this game, you, we got young families, we've got a job obligation, and we don't get a lot of time to, to you know, yeah, mm-hmm. you're not single just out of college anymore. You're not going to go burn up 200 rounds a weekend doing barricade practice. You got to practice exactly with right. a purpose. And uh, yeah, you got other obligations. And that's great to hear that of all those years of, of burning it down and burning out barrels and, and competing, competing in a bunch of matches every year, now you're able to back the throttle off some of it and still compete at a high level because of what you did before was done with a purpose. Uh, yes, that's exactly right. And I do feel like that's the case. I feel like I've probably. For sure, the last for sure last year have shot better than I ever have. Um, I felt better than I ever have shooting. Very comfortable behind the rifle. I do think uh, us picking up and starting these JTAC classes. It's honestly, it's almost like a practice session doing the classes. Yeah, it's probably helping um, you in the, as well. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I get to sit on glass and watch you know hundreds of rounds go down range in a weekend, helping people. Um, you know, just observations that you see other people doing will help you learn too. Mm-hmm. Um, so we pick up on stuff, you know, common mistakes that people make and just use that to our advantage and don't make those mistakes too. Yeah. Real quick, let's talk yeah. more about, about JTAC. And so, okay. uh, obviously there's some initials there. You can, we've already talked about those guys, but you can say who is who, and then what do you guys do? What, what, what's a JTAC class look like? Okay. So JTAC is just an acronym. Uh, it's for Justin Watts, Tate Streeter, Austin Organ, and Clay Blackheader. And I'm sure Tate probably talked about this some, but it actually started uh, a guy from Oklahoma that shot forever, used to do a lot of classes. Uh, they call him the White Wolf, named Rick Reeves. Yeah, everybody knows uh, White Wolf. Oh, yeah, everybody knows him. <laughs> he actually talked us into starting this class. Uh, we were all shooting really well. We were all ultra competitive. He said, man, you guys need to get together and put a class on. Um, so it was really his idea. We got together and kind of put a class on, and it was a hit. And we learned some stuff from the first few classes and expanded on that and uh, kind of made it what it is today. Um, basically, what's going to happen is if you sign up for a JTAC class, it's going to be two days. It's going to be a Saturday and a Sunday uh, most of the time. We'll start about 8 a.m., finish about 5.30, 6 o'clock in the evening sometimes. Um, we do a classroom session the first half of the first day, break for lunch. Uh, we feed everybody. And then we get right to shooting. We'll do break off into different segments. Uh, half the group will go shoot some positional stuff, work on that, and just basically, we'll just basically show everybody how we do it. Um, what's nice about it is, you know, for the most part, we're all the same. We have a lot of the same views and stuff, but there's a few things that are a little bit different that each of us do. So you can get four different opinions or four different options of what you want to do, and they all four work. I mean, they obviously all work. Mm-hmm. So you get to kind of tailor that to what what style you like best, what what you want to do. Um, the other half of the group will go, they'll start shooting some prone stuff, uh, shoot some troop on stages. Basically, we'll go over all, how we do our wind, uh, how we read the wind, how we feel where the wind's coming from, what we put into our ballistic solver, what we write down for data. Um, I mean, we really, we don't hold anything back, man. We don't hold any secrets, any, anything anybody wants to ask, we give it. Um, sometimes we probably get a little, a little bit too deep in some of the, in some of the muck and stuff and we got to rein ourselves back in, you know, 
kind of start seeing eyes get glazed over and it's just you know just doing it enough and, and with the four of us and all the knowledge combined we can get we can get pretty in depth but we try mm-hmm. to make it uh, we try to make it make sense we try to sure. use a pragmatic way of approaching it to say this is why we do it this is how it works um, and a lot of people have had success with it we've had several people come take the class that have won matches after they take them. oh that's Hell awesome yeah. So how how many classes have you done and and I mean what's the schedule look like for JTAC in 2022? Oh man, we've done. Put me on the spot. I don't know how many we've done total. Probably Round, roundabouts, fine. Obviously, if you 12 to 15. Somewhere oh wow, good. okay, yeah, that's and how many people per class do you usually take? We usually try to keep it to around 16, 16 oh, to wow. 18 per class. So a dozen classes uh, of over a dozen people. You're you're training quite a few. Yeah, yeah, and we've had quite a few repeat customers, you know, guys that will come back. You know, it's a, it's a lot of information. Really, by about halfway through day two, you can kind of tell that the that the fire's starting to burn out. The <laughs> blank look and the stare, they're like, man, I just can't process all this information. And it is a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what we found that guys will pick up one or two things from the first time they come, and they'll practice on that and expand on that. And then they start realizing some of the things we were talking about. They'll come back, take the class again, and and – Basically, everyone that has taken multiple classes said that they picked up more the second and third time they've taken yeah. the class than they did the first time. Uh, just yeah. because they, you know, start seeing it as they're going, they start going, "Oh yeah, I remember those guys were talking about that." So yeah. um, then they can come back, and then the, everything expands, and, and they learn really well. Would you recommend to anybody listening that's thinking about taking a JTAC class? Would you recommend they run a match or two uh, to kind of? To, to learn some of what they don't know about how, you know, what it takes to run a match and then take the class? Or you think this would be good for somebody right out of the gate, get their custom rifle and then take the class? It, it, we do have occasionally some beginner classes. Um, it's harder for us to put on beginner classes because it's, hard to, it's harder to get enough people gathered up that are in, on the beginner level mm-hmm. to come take the class. And we do beginner classes, and it starts a lot more basic because the, the what we call the intermediate or advanced class um, gets pretty deep, and it actually would help if you'd shot if you've shot a few matches before you come, because then you kind of okay. know. Basically, you kind of know what you don't know, right? Yep. You don't know what you don't know, but then when you go to a match, you might find out some of the things you don't know, and then some of the things we say make sense. If you just come straight to our class, never shot a match, and we've had a few guys do that, um, it's very difficult, and and we have to basically branch those guys off. And get those guys together and, and kind of tailor that part of the training to them because it'll take away from the more advanced guys. And sure. we want to we want to do a really even class. We want we want everybody to get what they want out of it. Um, and like we tell guys, if if you leave there, if you leave there with a question that you don't know, it's your fault because we're gonna we, you know we yeah. we give everybody opportunity to pull us aside, ask a question, um, you know, work one on one at some point. We try to break it up into smaller groups with all four of us being there. We're able to break it up into different smaller groups and just work on a specific thing. So, Sounds like Hornady needs to get Sounds about like 16, <laughs> 16 guys together and we need to make hey, a trip down there. Dang, we could. Hey, talk to talk them into it, man. We've offered. Uh, we've told Neil to uh, get you guys, get a group together. And uh, when you guys advantage. all can, come down. Yeah, because there's a lot of us here that have, you know, we're, we're in a unique environment where we're surrounded by it. But but you have the work obligations and you have, you know, family and whatever else is going on. And it's like, oh, there's a, a match, you know, in Utah. So you, you fly to Utah and run the match. But it's like, well, that that's my one or two for the year. 
And so there's a lot of cobwebs need to blow out. And then you don't get a chance to really learn that much. Um, You just kind of get stuck in the same repeat cycle of uh, what you already know. And you don't really do a lot of growing in that. I've always found if I shoot a bunch of rounds a year, I'm going to do really good. Yeah, weird. Before I had kids, (laughs) that was the best year I ever had. And I won a few local matches and stuff like that. But uh, yeah, uh, as soon as kids came, I'm sure it's, Maybe it's the same for you. Maybe not. What uh, you know? It just you don't have the time. What's what's this year yeah. look like for your shooting schedule? So I'm I've got a busy shooting schedule. Um, really, it makes it even busier with the JTAC classes. Sure. Uh, you guys have talked about a schedule for JTAC. As of right now, uh, we are doing two classes at the end of April in Wisconsin. We're going to do a Thursday Friday class and then a Saturday Sunday class at uh, at Ken and Missy. Uh, Wheeler's uh, range where they have the barrel maker. We're going to go put on a class up there for those guys. Uh, After that, I believe it's the third weekend of May, somewhere around the 21st, we've got one scheduled. Uh, We've talked about June. We haven't scheduled one quite till June yet, Uh, but we'll probably pick one up in June. So are most of them are in Oklahoma, but you will travel? We will travel. Um, pricing is a little bit different just to be able to cover travel. Uh, yeah, like if you guys, if you guys want us to come up to Nebraska and, uh, put together a whole horny team, if y'all got somewhere to have a good match and, and Hey, the, the key thing to it is it makes the JTAC classes in Oklahoma nice as you get to shoot in wind. It's hard to yeah. teach wind without any wind. You don't got to worry about wind here. Without uh, it. Yeah. You guys are just <laughs> like us. It's going to blow there just like it does here. So, yeah, I think, it's, um, go ahead. Go ahead. I was just going to say, I, I've said this before in a podcast, but growing up at shooting and then shooting the long range stuff early on and then getting competitive in the 2013 and 14 time frame, And then since then, there have been instances where I've shot in Nebraska and made a no wind hold, but I can't really think of any time I've ever shot when there's actually been no wind present. Right. Uh, it's kind of, yeah, kind of it's rare, of man. It. I have to pick perfect days and first thing in the morning or in the evening or something like that. Yeah. That's the only time I ever get to not shoot in any wind. Um, so, yeah, shooting schedule this year is busy yep, for you. It is. So uh, I've been to a couple already. Went to Clay's. Uh, went to Box Canyon in Kansas, which is a great match if you guys have never been. Um, went to pressure a, only this year. A one day there. That is a beautiful place. It is. It's a, you get to shoot basically 360 degrees. Uh, really cool terrain, wind. They made it a suppressor-only match this year, so that was a fun dynamic. It had been a while since I've got to shoot a suppressor-only match. I mean, I guess Silent Night's probably the last time it is that, so that was pretty fun, you know, everybody running cans. Even as a guy that sells brakes, it was was still (laughs) fun to run a can again since everybody had to. We uh, uh, probably, I'm I'm planning on shooting Justin's match, uh, his spring Okie showdown. Right after that will be Raton. Uh, I'll go shoot there again. That's a cool place to shoot there on the Whittington Center. It's a lot of fun. Uh, You get to shoot some pretty dynamic stuff. It's actually kind of strange because as much terrain features and everything that are there, it almost acts like a square range just because of the way it lays down in the canyon. and You don't always have a lot of wind. so Mm -hmm. Um, It's kind of a tricky place to shoot depending on which direction the wind's coming from, but I really like that match. I I just like that area. I like going to the mountains. Um, you know, I'm not sure. I'm, I'm obviously going to go shoot Hornady. Uh, that, oh, yeah. That's, that's one that's always on the schedule. I missed it the first, let me think. Was last year the third year or second year? I think it it's third, third year. Yeah. I had to miss the first two years. Uh, the first year was work. I was gone to work. 
in the second year, uh, I had other obligations I could make it. So I made it last year. It was the first time I got to go shoot up there. Uh, shot, shot well there, finished second. And so love that place, love that match. And then mm-hmm. it's always good to go support you guys. You know? Yeah. So we didn't touch on this yet, but what, uh, what, about, what was the time frame when you got involved uh, with Hornady? You know, because we, we obviously we make plenty of good bullets, but uh, yeah. when did you start picking up on those? So when you guys released the A-tips, this would have been, let me think about this, 2019? Mm-hmm. Sound right? Yep. Uh, about halfway through the year 2019, I switched over to the A-tip, uh, bought every bullet I shot that year running A-tips. Into probably part of the way into 2021, or I mean, sorry, 2020, it might have been first part of 2020 when I switched over to them. Uh, anyway, I won my won the first golden bullet running A tips, won the AG Cup running A tips, uh, nice. and at that point got picked up by Hornady, uh, now Hornady Hornady Team Shooter, and so that's that's and, and I mean that's what I run. I run either six Creedmoor Dasher. Um, one thing I have done uh, that's been really nice is buy a lot of six Creedmoor, just white box ammo, factory match ammo. I was going to bring um, that up here. That uh, t- I was going to ask you what your what your ammo and, and race gun setup looked like, and I was going to make a point of it that Justin Watts I know has burned it down with factory match yeah. Creedmoor ammo, but you've experienced good results as well. Oh yeah, yeah, that stuff's great. Um, I I actually haven't shot a match with it, and no reason other than just mainly because I mostly run my dasher. But mm-hmm. uh, you know, you're talking about practice when I when I do have a chance to practice, I get I can just grab a couple of boxes of that and go out and shoot the positional and shoot, you know everything. Um, man, that factory ammo is great. Yeah, well, that's cool to hear that you were running A tips before you were a Hornady shooter. That's that's yeah. really cool. And I was going to ask, you know, we saw the the difference, but. From an elite level shooter who was already competing at a high right. level, what was the incentive? Uh, you know, before you were sponsored, what difference did you see when you switched to the A tip? What was the draw there? So, fun, funny story. Uh, before the A tip, I was running a competitor's bullet. Mm-hmm. Um, good bullet, you know, nothing wrong with it. I got to noticing that some inconsistencies. I got to noticing that distance, I would really play a lot of like left edge, right edge, and. Uh, I was shooting with Clay quite a bit, and I'd watch him shoot, and you shoot long-range targets, and it just he never seemed to have that playing around elevation, playing around left edge, right edge. So I was like, you know what, you know, they're kind of expensive on the expensive side, but this is an yeah. expensive sport, yeah. Um, and you and you pay for quality. So I was like, you know what, I'm I'm going to give it a shot. So uh, when I could, I bought a few thousand of them, uh, tried them out. And I was like, holy cow, what a difference! Um, you know, you're running. If you're a BC guy, you're running a 309 BC basically on a on 110 grain bullet. Uh, it really likes to run that speed in a dasher. You're running about 2870. Uh, your BC variation is really really consistent, so we don't have to worry about elevation issues. Mm-hmm. And I didn't play that left and right stuff. You know that that 309 BC just helped helped on the long. Seemed like they hold together a lot better on the longer range shots, and then they're really consistent on any of the mid range stuff. So. That's where I saw the difference. Uh, just, just the consistency of them. Yeah, I mean, because, I mean, you can chase BC all you want, and yep. there's people that still do that. I mean, obviously, you guys, you elite level shooters, don't have to do that. But when you're getting consistent BCs, doesn't matter the BC. It's the same. That's going to make the difference. Oh yeah, that's huge. And and no, I no. got to to help in in that initial research and development of that bullet, and that was really one of the 
the chief things that we were trying to attack was the the variability in the drag performance so that you weren't getting vertical and wind dispersion that that was out of your control you know when obviously there's going to be uh vertical dispersion because of muzzle velocity variation but when you can't control the difference shot to shot to shot and drag variability um that's something that we needed to control and and uh, luckily yeah you know we've got a good team of of ballistic engineers and did a bunch of r&d and that was the one of the main things we attacked and i'm glad that you saw that um you know, being an unsponsored guy, uh, yeah. that you saw that because we put a lot of effort into making that work the way it does, and that's that's just awesome. So, uh, what oh, yeah. what you said you run a dasher? Uh, what does your gun setup look like? You still running an impact action? I'll take a guess. It's an impact action in the foundation stock. Yeah. <laughs> wild, wild guess you had there. Yeah. Yep, impact action. Um, foundation stock. I run their Centurion, which is okay. their. Somewhat newer stock, a little bit closer grip, wide forehand. Uh, really, really like the way the stock feels. It fits really well. Whose barrels are uh, you running nowadays? Uh, proof Research. I've been running proof? proof Research for about the last three and a half years or so. Love it. Shot a lot of proof barrels out, man. Yeah. Um, I've been really, really happy with the performance of those barrels. And what, um, what else we got? Trigger? What do you run for? Trigger, trigger? Bix and Annie Tax Sport Pro with the Gator Grip shoe. Yeah. What, uh, this is something I, I forgot to ask Tate, and I'm I'm going to ask every PRS shooter or NRL, you know, tactical long-range shooter precision person we want to talk to, precision rifle, how heavy is your trigger? What's it, what's it set at? You want to take a guess? I don't know. I've seen videos of you shooting. I've seen you shoot in person. If I had to guess, probably six ounces. I'm going to say, I'm going to go on the high end. I'm going to say it's 12 ounces. Eight ounces, right? Eight ounces. Eight ounces. Hey, eight I ounces. It. I said all my triggers are eight ounces. Um, I've tried to run lighter. I've noticed uh, that you get pretty fidgety. You kind of almost afraid to rest your finger on the trigger yeah. too much mm-hmm. if it's too light. Um, so uh, to me, really, eight ounces is just right. I can place my finger on the trigger and never have to worry about it going off. And cool. basically, when I want to press it, I can press it and go. Especially with that uh, Gator Grip shoe that I put on that Taxport Pro. It's a very textured uh, shoe. You can really feel the amount of pressure you're putting on it. Mm-hmm. It has a lot of feedback and a lot of feel on it. Okay. Just basically reduces the surface area on your finger. Now, uh, at the end of the barrel, you got a muzzle brake, and that's something that's that's close to home for you guys. What do you guys, what tell us about that ace brake? Okay. Yeah. So that's a brake that Clay Blackheader and myself developed. Uh, started a company called Ace Precision. Basically, what we wanted to do is we got tired of shooting the, the brakes that were most effective, were the angled back ported brakes. And man, they were just so punishing on the shooter. You had a lot of a lot of blast coming back on the shooter. You got a lot of concussion. And so we wanted something that would perform well without doing that. And essentially the way we wanted it to perform well is for the rifle to stay flat. So we came up with the ace muzzle brake. Tate Streeter had a big uh, part in that. He helped a lot. We actually had some bodies made. We went to Tate Shotgun on his mill, and we just kind of worked through several different designs. And we tried different stuff, you know, kind of coming from an engineering background. I had an idea kind of what I wanted it to look like in a way uh, and maybe some ways to do it. Uh, actually, I think Tate came up with the way the ports are. So we have straight through ports, um, just like, you know, a straight ported brake, but they're basically tilted forward. And so that tilt forward allowed more gas to be directed up through the portholes that we have on top of the brake that reduces muzzle rise. 
So we have a so you end up with a very flat shooting break without the concussion on the shooter. So it's a lot more pleasure. So you don't have that headache after two days of just getting blasted the whole time. And I mean, it's still a muzzle break, right? It's still loud, but right. you just you don't feel you know on some of those breaks you can feel it in your chest. It's almost like rattling your teeth loose. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was our goal: is just basically reduce shooter fatigue uh, with still effectiveness for recoil and being able to spot your shots, yep, especially positionally. So then on top of that, we. Uh, we basically made kind of almost a vernier scale type indexing line so that you can essentially clock your break, time your break based on recoil. So if you get in a positional shot, kneeling positional shot and you're shooting and you're seeing a consistent, say up and left recoil pattern, you can actually turn the break, turn the ports to the left into the recoil to help mitigate that recoil coming so you stay you know, a lot more center line. Yeah, and that's, that's some so simple. I don't know why people haven't it, it done that before. It sounds so simple, but it's also, <laughs> yeah. you know, it's it's really thoughtful in that, you know, in, in this game, nobody's shooting a heavy recoiling rifle. So it's right. not necessarily that you're trying to reduce the recoil as much as you are trying to control it because you right. want to Cur- keep your reticle on exactly target correct. as much as you can. So fantastic yeah. all the way around. And it's kind of funny, when we were doing some of the development and playing with these, I actually put it on a 7th uh, Psalm. It's a, it was a carbon fiber barrel hunting stock, lightweight, seven psalm, shooting 198 tips. Mm. And I was able to stay on target and spot my shots at, off PRS barricade at 400 yards. That's impressive. So it was really effective. Um, yeah. we, we've been really, really happy with the outcome of these breaks. And, you know, we, we had a good name in the sport, uh, but we really, really wanted to build something that worked. We didn't want to just rely on a name and people to buy. We wanted to design yeah. something that actually worked that people run that we were proud to run ourselves. So. That is awesome. So, Preston, any last things you want to bring up in the world of precision rifle competitions before we switch gears to what we are actually I'm kind of ready better to switch at? Switch gears. Stuff. Let's talk about hunting stuff because yeah, <laughs> that's a game that, that yeah we're we're a little yeah. bit better at than the precision rifle stuff. And and you're no yeah. slouch. You know, there's the list of animals that you've been able to take, and you just scroll through your Instagram or something, and yeah. there's some beautiful, majestic, good representations some stuff of a bunch that's on of different my animals. Bucket list. Yeah. Especially yeah. that odd dad. What was, tell us about that hunt. Where'd you go and what was your shoot? Okay. So really funny story on the odd dad. The first time we went all dad hunting is, uh, me and the buddy that I mentioned earlier on the range, Daniel Hughes, we went to South Texas down by Sonora, Texas and went on all dad hunt and didn't really have any luck. We found some odd dad. They were smaller, uh, than what we had expected or what we were told that we would probably be able to harvest. We ended up shooting some move on, had a really good time, shot some axis deer. So fast forward a few years later, he was on Craigslist and found this guy that was selling these odd ad hunts for sixteen hundred bucks. I've seen that ad. <laughs> so he's sitting there. You know, we're kind of wondering how sketchy this deal is. So we talked to the guy. What it ended up being was this guy had a ranch leased for all the deer hunting, and then he subleased all the deer hunting out. Well, he had some trail cameras out and found out that there were odd ad on there. He didn't even know they were there. And so he's like, yeah, I don't know. I just see if somebody wanted to go hunt them. And he wanted to kind of go with us too. So uh, we went on this odd dad hunt and saw a lot of odd dad. Nothing, you know, not really big odd dad. And, and there was a road that went around the whole ranch. We just, the first day or two, we just kind of hunted the road, stopped and glassed up in the hills. Uh, this was down by Del Rio, Texas, kind of in hill country. Uh, finally, kind of towards the end of the hunt, we decided we were just going to, you know, start hoofing it we were going to pack back into some of these uh deeper bowls and canyons and stuff where we couldn't see it from the road and uh, we got back in there 
Got on some all dead. Uh, Daniel, he shot one. He shot a little dinker. You'd tell him, get back fun of him. <laughs> but it was it was kind of a last minute deal. It was, it was the last half of the last day that we were going to be there. You know, it was, it was harvest that or harvest nothing at that point in time because we hadn't seen a lot once we got back in there. Uh, he he got that one. We we left our packs in the pickup. I had shot I had shot an axis deer earlier, and we gutted that and had that you know hanging in a tree in the shade. And we left all our packs at the pickup. So we get there and realize, hey, we just killed the sawdad, and we don't have a knife. So me and him both had semi-dull pocket knives. So we're skinning this thing out and, and cutting the back straps out of it with dull pocket knives. And, you know, uh, he, I don't think we ended up caping his out, uh, but we did. You know, we wanted to get the skull. He wanted to do a skull mount on it. Yeah. So we could finally get all that done. You know, it's, it's kind of narrowing down to the last few hours of the hunt. We're uh, walking around this big rim of the canyon, and, and they said, hey, you know, we're going to go back. We're going to go get that access deer. We're going to get that processed. Uh, so, you know, when it gets dark, we can kind of get out of here. And I said, okay, you know, I'm going to stay up here and hunt a little longer, and I'll just hunt my way back to the cabin because it was only a couple of miles away. And so I'm sitting, I'm glassing this rim, and I hear him, I hear him say, Austin, Austin. I'm like, what? And there was a bunch of, like, uh, I don't know. I'd call them cedar trees. They're not cedar trees, but whatever those evergreen trees they are they have in south texas mm-hmm. um, they were on the other side of those so i kind of fumbled my way through there and found them and and they were on the other side and the other in a bowl on the other side of the canyon and uh they had spotted two rams fighting so we got on the other side and uh, they were about if i remember out there 450 460 yards away but these two rams man they were just backing up and they just pop and then just echo through that canyon you know it was really cool and that's awesome they had hit each other a couple times and they'd stand side by side and they'd hook their horns together and just pull on each other pull back and forth for a while and they'd back up and just slam and it was really neat because and i have the video somewhere it it was really terrible video we didn't have a tripod or anything like that um so we watched them for a while doing that and there's a really nice flat rock right there that i could lay down on so i got laid down and i told them i said hey when they we picked out what one we thought was the biggest one I said, hey, as soon as they back up, they stop for a second right before they hit each other. I said, as soon as he stops, I'm going to shoot. So I got on my dope dial as soon as he stopped. I dropped him right there. Funny story, we got around over there to him, and there was about eight rams ran out of that canyon in the bottom of it. There was oh, a couple wow. of hot well, news in there. Found them Daniel, all. Daniel, he was, he was kicking himself because he shot the little one. I, you know, I don't even think I shot the biggest ram out of there. There was four or five really nice wow. shooters come out of that canyon. So. So yeah, that was the Audad hunt. It was a lot. It was a ton of fun. What what cartridge and bullet was uh, the Audad with? That was a six five Psalm with one forty three ELDX. Okay, pretty fast. Running them pretty fast. Uh, I think I was running them right around thirty one hundred. So decent, decent yeah. clip. Yeah, you know, not super yeah. hot. It's, it's kind of a short barrel. I think it's twenty or twenty two inch barrel. So, what's a typical hunting cartridge or excuse me, hunting rifle setup look like for you? Do you have a kind of a go to grab it out of the yeah. safe hunting gun? I do. So I, I use that psalm a lot on basically any deer size, game or bigger, uh, up to elk. So I hunt with a psalm. It's impact action, proof carbon barrel, uh, manners, EH1 stock. And depending on the scope, you know, I might have a Night Force NX8 or a Leupold 3-18 Mark V. Okay. Uh, that's what I use for that. What I like to hunt, smaller game with, coyotes, stuff like that, I have a six Creedmoor. Um, and actually a lot of the time I just grab factory ammo. I've shot several stuff with the 103 LDX. Mm-hmm. Um, I did just this year, I got some of the, uh, 
what is it? The Varmint ammo, the yeah, eighty-seven grand Vmax Varmint mm-hmm. Express, and I've I've been really pleased with that. For me, I can hot rod that Creedmoor quite a bit, and I run uh, when I do load it myself. I run the eighty-seven grain Vmax. I actually run in it pretty hot. It's about thirty-five hundred feet a second. Um, on a hot day, I get a pretty stiff bullet, so I really yeah. need to back it down. I'm about out of that ammo, so killed enough coyotes this year. I've about ran out of that ammo, so I need to back it down. So I'm running about thirty-four. So talking about hand loading, this is something I, I guess I should have brought up in regard to precision rifle. If you're burning down matches like you are, how much hand loading? are you doing and what are you shooting for ammo where do you go for that um so some of the time depending on what timeline looks like basically also how much time i give him clay at clay's cartridge company loads most of my ammo okay um i load quite a bit of my own ammo too uh just just, like i said just depending on time you know i try to keep enough components at my house and and have some components at his house where if i can give him enough heads up he can get some ammo cranked out you know pretty much have the same uh the, the same style. The uh, nice thing about it is uh, Clay and Tate and all those guys switched over to Dasher this year. Um, I guess they tried to talk me into running VRA for a while, and I guess they figured they weren't going to get me to change. Yeah. Uh, you know, I don't know why I would. So they so instead, they all changed the Dasher. That way Clay can just basically have a pet load for all our options oh, yeah. and just load it up and go. And that's, so far, that's worked really well. That's handy. Well, yeah, I'm kind of yeah. curious. Like, let's say, let's say you didn't know Clay at all. Or didn't he didn't offer a service like that? As a elite level shooter, are you loading like a, a barrel's worth worth of ammunition at a time, or a match's worth of ammunition at a time? Yeah, usually in match worth. Um, okay. Usually I'll do. You know, if I get a new barrel or whatever, I'll break it in first. Um, I don't ever start load development until I've got a few hundred rounds on it. You know, 150 maybe 200 barrel. Uh, once I get it broke in and kind of cleaned up, then I'll start a little bit of load development. I've ran the dasher enough years now. It load development's really quick. Um, mm-hmm. Usually, it's one of three loads. So, yeah, people can really overcomplicate things. We we're running six Creed Moors, and now I'm running a six Arc, and there's there's really no development anymore. Yeah, you kind of know what's going to work. Yeah, super easy, especially when you know it. Especially when you're running A tips that are just uh, yeah. forgiving a jump like crazy. Yeah, you just you just kind of see them and go. But yeah, don't really care. Mm-hmm. A tip don't care. Yeah, it really doesn't. You know, <laughs> it, really it, does. it doesn't. That's what's nice, and and that's what's nice about it too. You know, I can just, um, you know, we we actually had all our barrels chambered the same. Uh, Wade Studeville chambers all our barrels, uh, so we did all identical reamers and everything. So seating depths all the same. You know, the only thing that would vary is just barrel to barrel. We might be one or two tenths of powder difference, really, for an ideal load. But I mean, most it's so consistent and runs anyway. Yeah, mm-hmm. you're splitting hairs. Yeah, so. when you have top quality components and barrels, I mean, it, one or two tenths ain't going to make a difference. No doubt. I mean, it's just, it, you know, we try to make it easy. We push the easy button. Sure. Figure yeah. out what works. Um, until, you know, the, something is proven better and greater, we probably won't switch anytime soon to anything. Yeah. yeah. And then so. what we've learned here, we've got one particular engineer, Miles Neville. I, I'm mm-hmm. sure you've met Miles. They've Probably. talked. Yeah, among, <laughs> a, among a couple other folks, you know, what we've learned is, yeah, Proving something that is actually better takes a lot. A of, lot more than people are probably willing yeah, to do. It takes more than a couple, right. five or 10 or even 20 shot groups. I mean, absolutely. Uh, to, to, to actually prove it out that's statistically significant takes uh, a ton of shooting and, and it really makes you open your eyes to a couple tenths of powder really don't make that much of a difference. Yep. If, if any measurable difference at all. Now, one more change of gears. There's at least one more thing I want to talk about. This guy's a pilot. 
Oh yeah. Yeah, that's pretty cool, man. <laughs> so, out of uh, did you have any aviation background growing up, or just one day was like, man, that's cool. Should probably do that. <laughs> Um, really not at all. I've got an uncle that's a pilot. He flew commercial airlines for a while and did some training stuff. Uh, doesn't really live around here. He lived in Georgia. Honestly, what sparked it is I was working in the oil field. Uh, I had a job in West Texas, which is about seven, seven and a half hours away from home. Mm -hmm. uh, I was working two week on, two week off hitches down there. Uh, essentially, I was just tired of making that drive and I looked at it and, and what, what kind of happened is a buddy of mine that, Shoots with his son, shot some club matches. He doesn't go to any big matches or anything. He got into a little aviation club. Uh, they had an airplane, and he started flying. I was like, man, that's pretty cool. And I started looking at it, and I was like, hey, I can get these little planes and be in Pecos, Texas in two hours instead of seven and a half hours. Uh, so that was very intriguing to me, just being able to get home faster and get there faster. You know, It basically took me a day to get there and a day to get back on a two-week hitch. So you know, two weeks and two days is really what my hitch was. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I started getting my pilot's license. I was about a little over halfway through it whenever the oil field kind of crashed there. Um, I actually left my hitch in West Texas, uh, to come home early cause we were having a kid and we were having, having our son. So I left a few days early before my hitch was over. It was actually right in the very start of the uh, coronavirus. Oh, wow. Um, uh, basically the hospital said they weren't letting me in unless I'd quarantined for at least a week. So I had to leave my hitch early and come home and quarantine so I could be there to watch my son be born. Yeah. Sure. Um, knowing that they had laid our rigs down there, uh, I was a completions consultant. So knowing that I only had a few wells to go back to, uh, came home, stayed home for a week. I called my boss down there. He said, man, I don't want to tell you this, but they're not going to go ahead and complete these other wells that we had to complete. They're going to hold off. So uh, basically didn't have a job there. Um that had to be a bad time because you got a family now. Yeah, so it, it was very stressful for a very short amount of time because while I was home, we had our kid. Um, funny, funny how the world works. A guy that I'd shot with quite a bit, uh, a local guy that shot a lot of local club matches from Visai, texted me and said, uh, "Hey, our wellfield engineer is leaving at an iodine production plant, forty-five miles from my house." I said, "Are you interested in a job?" And I said, "Yes, I am." Uh, so I called my boss that I was working for in West Texas and just said, hey, you know, I, do you have anything at all? I, I just had an opportunity possibly come up. And he said, and he's a really good guy. And actually, I got that job because he's a shooter as well. Uh, he shot several PRS matches. And, Networking. Uh, goes to the NRL matches. Yeah, man, it's amazing the people that you meet uh, in yeah. this industry. So uh, he said, he said, a great guy to work for, too. He said, man, don't hesitate to take it. You know, I don't have any certainty right now at the oil field the way it is. I said, okay. So I told him, yeah, I'd be interested. And uh, I sent in my resume. I had a Zoom interview with all the bosses the next day and had a job offer the day after. So, wow. Cool. And yeah, I wasn't, in, I wasn't unemployed very long. I'm hoping that they're, they're, they're obviously flexible with your shooting schedule, too, or it uh, looks like. Yeah, so funny. Another funny story. My direct boss uh, builds guns. He's uh, a gunsmith. As he's the vice president of, of this company I work for. He's a gunsmith. He he really likes uh, like centerfire twenty two calibers, fast stuff twenty two Hornet. Mm -hmm. uh, really likes Dinkin. Very intelligent guy. Uh, so he he gets it, man. And then uh, and then our plant manager, the my other boss, he's a big time hunter. He's been to Africa four or five times. Um, 
So, man, they've been great. It's been a great, great company to work for. Their benefits are great. They, uh, I just say, hey, man, I'm, I'm going to be gone. I need, I, I need to take off and go to this match or whatever. And they're like, yeah, okay. Wow. Uh, so far, you know, as long as I'm doing my job and getting my work done, they've, they've been very accommodating with us. As long as you keep bringing home trophies. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Keep representing. Yeah, no kidding. Awesome. Well, you know, it's, it's been, I've learned a lot today and just uh, about you on a, on a personal level. And, and I can say for all of us here at Hornady, we appreciate you, you know, representing our brand in the way that you do, yeah. uh, not only because you're bringing home trophies, but because you're genuinely a, a great guy to have uh, with, with the Hornady logo on your shirt. You know, that's, it's, yeah. it's good to be associated with good people. And so, you know, from all of us here, we appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely, man. I'm, I'm, I've been very, very pleased and it's been really good getting to know you guys. You know, we got to shoot, uh, we all got to hang out together. Uh, what was that? It was in Nebraska um, last spring. Oh, Nahaka. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. The NRL. We all stayed in the Nahaka. house together. Got to meet, got to meet you guys. Um, man, yeah, it's been great. You guys uh, support us a lot. You guys support the business a lot. You support the community a lot. And I'm really glad to be a part of it. So Awesome. Preston, is there anything last minute before we wrap this thing up? Um, no, I can't think of anything. No. Awesome. I got one. When, when yeah. are we all going to go yeah. hunting together? We need to go hey, hunting together. Let's yeah, let's do that. Uh, I'm a big uh, <laughs> I'm a big mule deer fan. Uh, I'm a big anything. Me, fan. Hey, me, hey, me too. I, I've only uh, I've killed two, both with a bow. Okay, well let's we should so. get something on the books. Anything spot and stock. I don't know. Uh, yeah. That's any. It doesn't matter what state or what animal. I just like to be able to jab and stab and glass and run around. It's really bad for me because. Basically, all we have here is whitetail deer and, and coyotes, and I love coyote hunting. Absolutely love coyote hunting. There's there's a thrill to it. Uh, Any more deer hunting is so boring. Yeah, uh, especially whitetail deer. You know, there's not much spot and stock here. You just sit over a wheat field or corn pile or canyon or something like that. And and once I've been to in the western states and hunted elk and and hunted mule deer and hunted bear. It's like, ah, oh, do I really have to sit here and hunt this stinking whitetail? Yeah. <laughs> Can I just go west and spot and stalk yeah. something? Can I go hunt something fun? Yeah. There's I, different strokes for different folks. I yeah. So I'm not against anything. I, I, I'm i all for any type of hunting. I'm just saying for, for me and my personality type, again, I don't care what animal it is. I just want to be able, yeah. and this is what I'm about to say, doesn't actually equate to me killing anything more or less, but I like to feel like I'm being proactive. And for me, if I can stand up and walk for three miles to get to a better spot or, or whatever, I'll hunt whitetail all day, but I, I prefer the spot and stock style thing. And if you haven't hunted the Nebraska Sandhills, Austin, that I'm, I'm not g- generally super impressed with hunting opportunities in Nebraska, but I'll tell you what, the Sandhills have just a, a, a draw to them because they're so unforgiving. They're so desolate. And uh, it's just a blast. So we should, uh, we could, and you got an opportunity for, for mule deer and whitetail and uh, yeah. spot and stock style hunting. And if you're like me, I don't know if I was like bit by something when I was a child or something, but I have this infection where if I'm in the perfect glassing spot and it took me three miles to get there, and if I can see a hill that may be just a little bit higher in elevation, Guess I got to go over there. You I, I, go just, over there I can't. I, I can't not do it. So uh, the Sandhills really lend you sound, themselves. You sound to that. like my buddy from Colorado. He's a, a big time hunter and outfitter. And it's like we get somewhere, and you know he's from the area, and we're hunting in the mountains. And guy, he just kills us to get there. You're coming from the flatlander like I am. Sure. 
And we get up there, I'm like, okay, we can stop in glass for get a break or something like that. We'll sit down in an elk will bugle across the canyon. He's like, yep, we got to get over there now. And boom, gone. Okay, here we go. <laughs> Yeah, that's <laughs> hey, don't awesome. get me wrong. I probably came off a little bit wrong. I still love the deer hunt. I just love yeah. the hunt. Period. It doesn't. Matter. Yeah. But if yeah, I had my if I had my druthers, I'd I'd be uh, in a western state hunting elk and mule deer. Well, let's or uh, bear, let's, uh, yeah. let's get something on the books for Nebraska whitetail or ne- excuse me, Nebraska sandhills because the tags are over the counter, largely over the counter. They're really affordable and uh, it's just a beautiful area to hunt. So let's get that on the books. And it's, and it's it's very interesting habitat too because like if you if you've hunted the mountains, you'll be like. Oh, I guess these are hills. But the yeah. second you take a step and your footing is just gone because yeah. it's sand, it's it's yeah. a, it's a little bit of an equalizer. It really is. Yeah, you're not, you know, Nebraska sand hills range from probably 3,000 to 4,500 feet above sea level, so not super high. But you step, your heel sinks, you roll onto the balls of your feet, the balls of your feet sink, you push off your toes, your toes sink. So <laughs> yeah. the front of your ca- your calves and then your hip flexors just get roasted. <laughs> I haven't found a way to train for that because it's it steals every step away from you. Yeah, but. you just got to find a big sand hill and run up, up and down. There. Yeah, find whatever vegetation you can step on. <laughs> yeah. yeah, awesome. Well, Austin, again, thanks for for coming on today, and uh, yeah, we just can't say enough good things about you. So, Preston, Austin, thanks for sitting down, you bet. guys. Appreciate you tuning in, and we'll catch you on the next one.